Hello, this is the Journal of American History podcast for summer 2018. My name is Benjamin Irvin, and I am the executive editor of the Journal of American History. Today's episode concerns the nation of Islam and prison organization in the United States. In a moment, I'll introduce our author, Dr. Garrett Felber. But first, I'm very excited to welcome a special guest host, Dr. Callie Gross. Dr. Gross is the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of History at Rutgers University. She is an expert in the history of criminal justice in the United States, particularly as it has affected the lives of black women. She is the author of three current or forthcoming books. Her most recent title is Hannah Mary Tabbs and the Disembodied Torso, A Tale of Race, Sex, and Violence in America, published by Oxford University Press, winner of the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Nonfiction in 2017. Dr. Gross has held several prominent public fellowships with the Ford Foundation, the New York Public Library Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, and the Op-Ed Project, among other institutions. Her essays have appeared in outlets such as BBC News, The Washington Post, Ebony, and Jet. Her article, African American Women, Mass Incarceration, and the Politics of Protest, appeared in a special issue of the Journal of American History in June 2015. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Gross. Thank you for having me. I am also very pleased to welcome our author, Dr. Garrett Felber, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Mississippi. Dr. Felber is a historian of the 20th century United States. His research focuses primarily on black nationalism, prison organization, and the carceral state. He is the co-author with Manning Marable of the portable Malcolm X Reader, published by Penguin Books in 2013. He has recently held a fellowship at Harvard University's Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History and is now a fellow at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. Dr. Felber is the founder of Liberation Literacy, an organization that promotes literacy and community within and without the prisons of Portland, Oregon. His essay, Shades of Mississippi, The Nation of Islam's Prison Organizing, the Carceral State, and the Black Freedom Struggle, appears in the June 2018 edition of the Journal of American History. Welcome, Dr. Felber. Thank you so much for having me. As I mentioned before, Dr. Gross will be hosting today. She's going to interview Dr. Felber about his article, so I'm going to turn over the microphone to her as I am eager to eavesdrop on their conversation. Dr. Gross. Thanks so much, Ben. So, Garrett, welcome. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you doing this. Oh, no, I'm so excited about this opportunity to talk to you about your fascinating work. I really enjoyed reading about prison organizing, the black freedom struggle, and the carceral state. Before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of the article, and hopefully we'll have time to touch on your larger work as well, I wanted to just take a beat and ask you a little bit about how you became interested in the subject, or to ask you to talk a little bit about what kinds of things and experiences led you to do this work. That's a great question. I was doing my master's at Columbia University in African American Studies a decision that came out of my own interest in jazz, actually. I played saxophone and was really interested in the cultural politics of racial appropriation of jazz. It was there that I met Manning Marable and got sucked into the Malcolm X vortex. And <laughs> working on his biography, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, led to the co-authored book that we worked on together. And ultimately, a lot of my questions that come out in this article and in the subsequent book that I'm working on were tensions between the way that he was reading the Nation of Islam and, and what I was seeing in the archive, which was a pretty robust political organization engaged in different forms of struggle and wondering where in the literature that was, because by and large, the Nation of Islam was written as sort of marginal to the civil rights movement or even to the black mm -hmm. freedom struggle more broadly and mm -hmm. seen as, as apolitical. 
Okay. Awesome. So in your work, you call attention to the plight of black prisoners in the country's carceral state. At the same time, I think you do a great job of really challenging scholars to think critically uh, about their assumptions sort of regarding the historical relationship kind of between civil rights and prisoners' rights activism. And I'm wondering if you can just explain to the listeners sort of what some of those assumptions are and why you believe we need more historical precision. Yeah, so the the dominant narrative in terms of thinking about the prisoners' rights movement in relationship to the civil rights movement is one of the prisoners' rights movement growing out of the confrontation between civil rights activists especially this moment when freedom riders are incarcerated at Parchment Farm in Mississippi and the prisoners' rights movement that we see in the late 60s as growing out of that. And that follows along a similar trajectory in some ways of the carceral state, which is that scholars have narrated the carceral state as a sort of backlash to the successes of the civil rights movement. And what I point out in the essay is that there are a couple of assumptions that I think the long civil rights movement historiography has pushed against that this particular narrative still holds on to. One is this idea of the Southern movement moving north. So it it has this Mm -hmm. tendency to erase the activism of black prisoners that's already happening in the north concurrent to the freedom rights in the south. The other is black nationalism as a strictly post-civil rights black power phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that we see black nationalism as a current of black intellectual thought that carries from Garvey all the way through the black power period. And then finally, just that the South can be a metaphor used by Northern activists that doesn't necessarily conflate the two struggles as scholars have cautioned against, but that the idea of prisoners at Attica and the phrase shades of Mississippi being used by the nation of Islam is a way to say that racism is not an exceptional characteristic of the South, but rather that this is a national and a global phenomenon. Yeah, right. No, I think that you make a really good intervention there. It's on page 72 of the article. I actually have a note where I wrote down random. I really like how you make this point about Northern activists mobilizing some of that imagery, not so much to sort of hearken to it as a purely, you know, like to the South or Mississippi specifically, purely as a physical space, but really to sort of represent a set of power relations and also to call attention to this kind of repressive, racist, and sort of violent practices that they are pushing back against. So I, I really like that. Okay, so now you've laid out some of the problems or the issues that your essay is kind of working to correct or to push back on. I think it might also be good to talk a little bit more about some of the scholars and the scholarship that you're in conversation with. I think you touched on it certainly just now when you mentioned scholars of the long civil rights movement. Are there sort of specific work that have been kind of instrumental in sort of shaping your thought as well as kind of propelling your questions? Yeah, absolutely. The work that I'm probably the most in conversation with, which really lays out, I think, the importance of prisoners as theoretical and activist agents driving forward the work of the civil rights movement and the civil rights era. But I think one of the tasks that I'm trying to do with with this article is bring together two conversations. One is that of the Black Freedom Movement, and the other is that of the carceral state. And there's certainly works that do a good job of kind of vacillating between those two. 
But I think sometimes we have a tendency in the carceral state literature to tell these sort of totalizing stories of federal policy that just look like an unimpeded march towards mass incarceration. And Mm -hmm. often the reverse tendency in the histories of the Black Freedom Movement to not always fully show the level of the mechanisms of the state that demonstrate what they and we are up against. And part of what I'm trying to get at with with the dialectics of discipline framework Mm -hmm. for this is to see a conversation between those that can help us bring the literatures together. Okay, so actually, I'm glad that you mentioned that phrase, because I think it's great. And I actually want you to take a minute and sort of unpack what you mean by that dialectic of discipline, because it's pretty central to your argument and to this goal of wedding these sort of two overarching narratives. So the dialectics of discipline, as I conceptualize it, and you're right, it is central to this essay and also to the book I'm working on, is to think perhaps in a more granular way about struggle, which is that, of course, it's not wrong to say that the carceral state, for example, was built in part out of a backlash to the civil rights movement or the gain of the black freedom struggle, but that's certainly not the entire story. So what I wanted to do here is get to the kind of nitty gritty of dialectical struggle between prisoners and those who imprison them. And in the book project, I extend that to look at police and those who are policed as well. And the dialectics of discipline, what I hope to convey in that phrase is sort of two notions of discipline. There's discipline as a means to control, which is we see it with prison wardens and COs. And then there's the resistance to it, a sort of self-discipline or collective discipline, which the Nation of Islam right. uses in particular to really challenge those means of control. The other piece that I want you to, to do is sort of walk us through. Well, actually, I'm going to back up a little bit before I get you. The question that's coming is I want you to talk a little bit more about the Nation of Islam just sort of a little bit of a background and then how you position them in this piece. But that's going to be in a placeholder. Before we get to that, I actually want to ask you if you have sort of faced any kind of concern or perils in undertaking this work. And what I mean by that is a lot of times when folks study anything about black folks in the prison, there's a concern about how that is going to play out or reflect politically on Black people. And in this instance, in trying to bring together even more so this struggle for prisoners' rights and civil rights, I'm wondering if you run up against or come across any folks who are concerned that you aren't making kind of a proper distinction, perhaps, between sort of traditionally recognized political prisoners, like folks who are arrested for protests, and folks who are incarcerated who are actually protesting sort of the system and the structures of the institution and the justice system itself. Yeah, I think there's a couple of pieces to that. I have faced some pushback, and I think there's some remnants of that in this article of what the relationship of the Nation of Islam writ large, but especially prison organizing, is the civil rights movement in particular, and mm-hmm. maybe the black freedom struggle more broadly. So one of the things, say that this is a stream of activism within perhaps the civil rights era, or a period that we typically associate with certain types of actors and activism. And what I'm trying to do with the parallel to the Albany, Georgia movement, the jail no mm-hmm. which we can talk about. Okay. I haven't to your specific question about conflating 
political prisoners with what Sostre would call politicized prisoners. I haven't faced as much pushback about that in particular. I think I find his conceptualization of that really helpful, that Mm -hmm. he comes to prison not as a political prisoner and becomes politicized through the process of incarceration. And he eventually becomes, you know, recognized Amnesty International in his second term of incarceration as this sort of classical political prisoner as he's framed by the Buffalo police in 1967. So I do think there is a distinction to be made between the politicized prisoner and the political prisoner. But what I find valuable in his distinction between those is he comes to the place where he says we are all political prisoners in the sense that there are structural oppressions in place which lead us to be incarcerated. So I think those distinctions are helpful, but also that he gets us to a place where we can see some points of continuity as well. Okay, great. I think here I want to return to my placeholder question and just sort of ask you to tell us a little bit more about the nation of Islam and the way that you sort of situated them in your discussion in this essay. Yeah, so the Nation of Islam, I, I'm part of a, a group of scholars, I think, that are, are rethinking how we as historians look at the Nation of Islam. The typical reading of the NOI has been to see, in particular, its relationship to Malcolm X as him pulling them more and more into the political sphere, into the civil rights movement, and the Nation of Islam, usually as symbolized by one person, Elijah Muhammad, as being reluctant to do so. And that this tension between the two leaders eventually leads Malcolm to leave the Nation of Islam. And myself and other scholars have seen this as being sort of a detriment to both, to the ways that the Nation of Islam has profoundly shaped Malcolm X's own thinking, but also that then the Nation of Islam gets seen as this movement that somehow was apolitical or marginal or not engaged in the political struggles of that period. So... That's sort of where I'm coming into thinking about the Nation of Islam, in particular during the post-war period up until 1975 when Elijah Muhammad passes away and there's that change of leadership. Okay. And I asked you to talk about the Nation of Islam, but really it's sort of the, the Muslim faith in general kind of plays a significant role in, in I think, the essay in thinking about sort of some of the activism that prisoners engage in, also some of the ways that they are politicized around sort of, you know, the issue of of kind of justice, which I I put in quotes. Um, And there are two cases that you reference quite a bit in the piece, right? Pierce v. Laval, and then is it Samarian versus McGinnis? Yeah, I say Samarian v. McGinnis. Samarian. To be honest, I'm I'm just, (laughs) I've never heard it said a lot either. Okay. And then there's a later one as well, the Cooper versus Tate. But talk talk to us a little bit about these cases and explain sort of their significance for your work. So Cooper v. Tate is the big one in terms of the prisoners' rights movement, and it actually plays the smallest role in this piece. And I'd like to give a bump to Toussaint Lozier, who's writing about this case, and Thomas Cooper's work to bring it forward. So I'm really excited about his work as well. But Cooper v. Pate in the mid-1960s basically ends what has been almost a century-long silence in the judiciary over issues of incarceration. So from the 1871 case of Ruffin v. Commonwealth, which defines 
incarcerated people as slaves of the state, the judicial branch has essentially said, we don't want to weigh in on issues of prison discipline. That's not our role. And it's until that case that prisoners essentially don't have constitutional rights. And I focus a little bit more on Samarian v. McGinnis and Pierce v. Lavalle because these are the two cases that lead up to the Cooper v. Pate decision in New York, in particular these cases, whereas Cooper v. Pate in Illinois, but also sort of reading beyond them as important just for their legal outcome. Because neither of these cases actually end with the full religious rights that Muslims are hoping for. But what I hope to do is using a methodology that's a little different from legal scholars is looking at the transcripts and kind of reading them as oral histories, see that as a way that we as folks involved in carceral studies can get at the voices of those incarcerated without having to simply tell it through state-driven narratives. This is great, actually. You touched on another piece that I wanted to talk to you about, which is the sources you use and some of the strategies that you use. Can you expand on that latter piece? Yeah, I mean, to be quite frank, part of this methodology came out of my own shortcomings as a legal scholar and feeling like I was just out of my depth in terms of charting all of these different cases and what impact they had and which courts they moved from. I mean, many of them go on back and forth in appeals throughout the 70s and into the 80s. And what I found out of that shortcoming was that reading the transcripts actually gave me more access and information about what this activism looks like inside than was available in any other method. I mean, I sort of wanted to look into, you know, more traditional oral history at the point when I started this essay, Martin Sostre was the only of these prisoners who was still alive. And I was in touch with him very infrequently, but it was a way that I could see on the ground what was happening between prison guards and incarcerated Muslim men because they were bringing cases against wardens and eventually the state commissioner. They had journals where they had meticulously kept track of every single infraction, the number of days of good time they lost, the number of days that they were in solitary. And none of the prison officials in court ever challenged those numbers. They're argument was essentially this is a hate group and all of this discipline is well justified. So it was a way to get their own story without having to strictly look through disciplinary reports of prison wardens or surveillance memos, which I also look at, but I read those differently than I read the courtroom testimony. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think you do really beautifully in this essay is you really lay out kind of the dialectics of discipline in terms of charting some of the ways that prisoners really sort of study and are able to lay out and challenge their oppression and repressive prison practices by sort of, you know, writing and challenging the state. I mean, there's a great quote on page 87 where Sosha actually says that he lists his sort of his most essential weapons, right? or kind of fighting the devil, right? This is a quote, legal paper, an ink eraser, $1 postage stamp, a loose leaf binder, and a ballpoint pen, right? These are Mm -hmm. sort of essential weapons of resistance, and they count meticulously, like, the ways that they lose this kind, arbitrary nature of punishment, the, the use of solitary. But at the same time, you also show us that the interplay about sort of the state and the state surveillance of these folks 
not just, you know, in terms of the ways that they challenge the state legally, but also through that surveillance and really kind of studying and observing the men, the Muslims, and their practices. So tell us a little bit more about sort of that surveillance and some of the lengths to which the state kind of goes to meet their efforts at resistance sort of step by step. Yeah, this is what I try to get at in terms of what seems originally like a paradox. So how do we have an increasingly radical and robust prisoners' rights movement at the same time that we have an extension of the carceral state and mass incarceration? And I think the way that we can see that is a much smaller struggle on the ground. And as you point out, one of those struggles, for example, is over writ writing. So we have on one hand Martin Sostre, who's you know a so-called jailhouse lawyer, and he's helping this organized litigation movement by filling out the legal paperwork and just leaving the name blank so people can just write in their name. And the state responds by having these rules, not just in New York, but across the country, where you cannot have any legal paperwork in your possession that is not your own. So they can therefore punish you if you are trying to file a writ on someone else's behalf. And this goes throughout this period where the state and Muslim prisoners are in this kind of constant dialogue of struggle over writ writing, over confiscation of religious literature, even the relationship between solitary confinement and good time practices. I try to get at how punishments can work together to actually heighten the punishment, that it's not just about solitary confinement or the loss of good time, but that those can actually work as a sort of echo chamber to really ramp up the scale of punishment inside. So I guess part of what I'm trying to do is just show that these everyday struggles bubble up just as sort of federal Mm -hmm. policies can impact and trickle down. So for me, one of the things I was really struck by in kind of that exchange is when you have the discussion around, you know, the hate that hate produced and then also the scholarship of C. Eric Lincoln. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, because I think it would help to just sort of give some examples about how sort of invested the state becomes in kind of studying these folks as subjects and an effort to find better ways towards sort of containment and control. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up The Hate the Hate Produced and Derek Lincoln's book, The Black Muslims in America. So part of what I want to get at is the way that carceral officials are also positioned as knowledge producers and intellectuals of a sort, and that that it really matters in terms of state policy, what they're reading and how they use it. So The Hate That Hate Produced is this 1959 documentary by a black journalist, Louis Lomax, with Mike Wallace, leader of 60 Minutes fame. And it's really, you know, a piece of, of media hysteria, and it's the first introduction of the Nation of Islam to a largely white audience. And it does so, as the title suggests, through this idea that black nationalism is actually black supremacy, black hate, reverse racism, that it comes out of or in response to white racism. So it's sort of this watered down liberal call to say, if we don't eradicate white racism, then there will be unfortunate examples of black racism. And this has great appeal to prison officials who at the same time are struggling with the rising numbers of radicalized Muslim prisoners. And they really gravitate towards that narrative of this being a hate group. And also to see Eric Lincoln's book, 
which is actually a pretty nuanced understanding of the nation of Islam, but his title, The Black Muslim, this is the first time, I mean, people to this day, most books refer to the nation of Islam, as, not as Muslims, but as black Muslims. And mm-hmm. this is the creation of Eric Lincoln. Uh, prior to that, they're known as all sorts of things, voodoo cults and all of these kind of orientalizing racist tropes. But the idea of the black Muslim is so profound because it, in one fell swoop, sort of marginalizes the nation of Islam from a global Muslim community because they're not Muslims, they're black Muslims. And it also kind of isolates them from politics because they're a religious group and not a political one. And the way that plays out in prison is that now the state can say, this is not a religious group. They want religious privileges, but they're actually a hate group. They're a political, subversive organization under the guise of religion. So that's a way in which these intellectual productions of television and scholarly work get picked up by prison wardens and corrections officials and psychologists and used as a means to suppress Islam. Right. So I was sort of astonished, you know, that, that the officers had been reading these books and doing all this stuff. But at the same time, I think you also do this great job of showing, again, the ways that folks resist. And you talk a lot about, I think, one of the things I was so smitten by is that it's the power of word comes through really effectively, that there are these direct actions, you know, that prisoners engage in hunger strikes, they do the, you know, the coordinated sort of writs, but also you talk a little bit about the power of testimony. And I wonder if you could expand upon that here, not only with respect to the weight of some of Malcolm X's words, but also how that is sort of empowering even for the individuals who are involved in going to court and taking a stand in these cases. So I think the the role of testimony is so profound throughout the Black Freedom Movement, but especially for incarcerated people, precisely because one of the most basic things that they are facing is silencing. I mean, it's a physical mm-hmm. silencing, but it's, there, it's a voicelessness. And they have an opportunity through these cases to stand before a federal judge and testify to the brutality of the state. And they do so through this sort of meticulous list of all the ways that the state has suppressed their religious rights and through cruel and unusual punishment of solitary confinement and these good time practices. So to be able to stand before the courts, especially during a time when this is pre-Cooper v. Pate, I mean, these are men who do not, in the eyes of the court, even have constitutional rights who are seen as slaves of the state. So to be able to do that is a tremendous political act. And I also think what they do really deftly is create legal challenges, which are about strictly religious rights. And then once they get in court, broaden that to issues of solitary and to good time. So, Mm -hmm. for example, Pierce v. Lavalle, the actual writ is solely about access to the Quran. And that's not to say that they did not want access to the Quran. They did. And they were only given access to an English version. And what they wanted was an English and Arabic version. But when they get in court, they immediately start talking about excessive use of solitary confinement. And, you know, ultimately, they change their legal strategy because the judge says, we're just here to talk about the Quran. You now have access to it. As far as I see, you know, this issue of solitary is outside of the bounds. But it's one way that they can get into a space where they can talk about these issues through a writ and through testimony. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I realize that we've talked about it. It's come up a couple of times. You've mentioned the issue of good time. Could you just explain that a little bit more so for folks who are listening or who haven't read the essay? What's the issue around sort of good time and the way that it's used or taken away? Thank you so much for reminding me to explain that. Um, so good time practices, often called earn time now, are basically a way that an incarcerated person could lower their sentence through essentially good behavior. And the way that this was used as a sort of carrot and stick in prison discipline was if you were, say, written up for a disciplinary report, you would lose, say, 30 days of good time. And then on top of that, if you were put into solitary confinement, not only could you not earn good time while you were in solitary, but you would lose it as you were inside. So that's what I was referencing in terms of the way that Mm -hmm. these things would work in tandem is that people would actually be serving their full sentences. For example, Sostre serves his full 10 years because he spends so much of that time in struggle, losing good time and in solitary confinement. So it's, it's beyond just the sort of physical, psychological damage of putting someone in solitary. It's also a way to keep them incarcerated for the fullest amount of time possible. Mm -hmm. So thanks for that. And also I want to just to echo a point that you made earlier about sort of the, the importance of the, testimony. I mean, I totally agree with you. I think it is so sort of courageous and heroic. And the times that I've encountered, even in my own scholarship, it's just served like a multiplicity of resistances, sort of plural, right? One is they are kind of contesting that voicelessness outright. I think it's this way in which they are sort of reclaiming their humanity, right, in a system that seems sort of determined to strip that away and reduce people to either these sort of racist, violent tropes or purely as numbers, right? Literally not, you know, a name, but a number or a case file or something. But then also, for you know, in the ways that I've encountered it too, and I think there's, there's some resonance even with your work here, is that a lot of instances, Black women who have, you know, testified either about, you know, crimes or injustices that have been done to them, even in defense of themselves, knew that they were doing so in this sort of hostile space with very little chance of success in terms of winning. But they still sort of put themselves through that process to give themselves a voice to advance this sort of cause. And I think I see a sort of similar kind of heroism at work with these men. They know in some respects they're going up against this system that is totally sort of skewed or biased against sort of their positionality. It's still they are, you know, making a case and laying a claim and actually giving themselves a voice, right? That the system has to heed them in some way. Yeah. And I think you capture so well in that point, just how the magnitude of what they're up against. There's this letter from Thomas Bratcher, one of the men that I write about to Malcolm X, where he says, essentially that they're fighting on the front lines of this war and that Malcolm X and others outside are the home front and that they cannot win this war without the support of the home front. And to me, that just captures just how big the thing is that they're up against. And I think you're right. Testifying in the courtroom is a reclamation of space. If you're an incarcerated person, the court is not a place that was kind to you, not a place of justice in many cases. So to go back into a courtroom and testify to the brutality that you're facing or the injustice, I think it, it is really a spatial challenge as well. No, I couldn't agree. I think you're totally right there. Now, 
I have to ask you, I have two quick. One is a tongue-in-cheek one, <laughs> which is that you make this argument about New York as being the leader of the carceral <laughs> And for someone who studies Pennsylvania, right, I would be remiss <laughs> if I did not ask you to explain yourself. You know, explain out why you focus on New York and why you think it is so sort of essential or, or pivotal in kind of looking at this issue. I'm glad you asked that. This is the problem always of the of the case study. Any anytime you say your state or your place matters, everyone's like, no, 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 because I because I know Kelly Lytle Hernandez would say Los Angeles. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, part of the reason that I look at New York is that there are basically three hubs in terms of incarcerated Muslims challenging the carceral state, and one is New York, one is Illinois, and one is California, and. New York was probably the least understood of those three. I still think we have a long way to go with both Illinois and, and California. But it also just offered such a, a window into all of these other things. I mean, one was the source material at the New York State Archives, to be honest. I mean, there was mm-hmm. access to not just to the court cases, but to this New York State Police group called the Non-Criminal Investigation Unit, which was essentially a converted red squad. So I had access to all of that surveillance. I do think New York has a particularly large role in terms of how this discipline then radiates outward because of that. So I'm able to see that Commissioner McGinnis in New York around the time of the hate that he produced actually has a prison inspector who starts these monthly memos. And what I document is the way that he both reaches out to other states to find out what they're doing about what he calls this cancerous growth spreading throughout the prison. And then once he gets that, he sort of packages it together in these memos and sends it back out. So I'm not sure that I, I'm making the case that New York is <laughs> is the you know ground zero for the expansion of the carceral state as a state, but I think it's a particularly important place to understand how the Nation of Islam is growing as a political movement inside and the ways that carceral officials are processing and sort of exporting what they're finding and the tools that they're using. Okay. So as someone who studies Pennsylvania, the birthplace of the penitentiary, I will accept your answer, Dr. Felba. Okay. Thank you. One they, they, they sold us out. They sold, they sold solitary <laughs> confinement from Pennsylvania and used it in New York. So yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> well, the other question I have, this one, it, it's more in depth, right? It's near and dear to my heart. So I, say, I enjoyed reading your piece, and from reading this piece, you clearly get the sense that this is sort of a man's story, right? Mm-hmm. Collection of stories that are overwhelmingly about men. And you do mention activists like Angela Davis and folks who have had sort of an impact on Nation of Islam prison activists. But even so, I think it's still largely about men. That said, I don't think that this is necessarily outside of a broader conversation about gender. And so I'm wondering about how race and gender, and especially black masculinity, vis-a-vis white supremacist constructions of white masculinity, like how are these at play here? So I'm wondering if you can say something about that. And, and I'm asking that especially so because I know that there's a portion of the Nation of Islam's rhetoric, particularly as it pertains to black nationalism, is directly tied to the sort of elevation and some might say the sort of restoration of black manhood, right? And black men's right 
to sort of be kind of the stewards of their own destiny and, and over their community and, and so forth. So where, and I don't know if that necessarily here, or if that's something that you expand on in the broader project, and that might, and this might also be a good time to segue into that as well. So I asked you a whole bunch of stuff there. I'm now going to zip it and listen. Well, it's all, it's all great questions. Absolutely, there is a politics of black masculinity at play here and throughout the Nation of Islam, but in particular, that's heightened inside. And it extends to issues of sexuality. For example, the Muslim Brotherhood Constitution, they have their own constitution inside. It forbids any members being homosexual. And I think even your question is about gender and the politics of black masculinity, but I think it also gets to the absence of women as well. Insofar as I was looking through these documents, hoping to find some trace of incarcerated women in the Nation of Islam. Because certainly, Mm -hmm. as you have documented in your own work, this is an era in which there's an even higher disproportionate number of black women who are incarcerated than men. It's, you know, the period where prisons are just now in the 60s moving towards majority black and brown. But in terms of women's Mm -hmm. prisons, they've long been there. And mostly what I found was a few women, many of whom had converted prior to. So it was a different experience. They had, you know, last names like Sharif. And which led me to this question, well, why weren't women inside, they weren't filing litigation, they weren't perhaps converting other women. And I think it gets back to your point about men as being the stewards of the black community and its reclamation of black manhood, because that was based on a politics of protection for black women. And there's this great sort of anecdote in Eula Taylor's new book, where these two women in Alabama in the late 50s sit down in a whites-only bench, and they're approached by this police chief. And he asked them to move. And these two men say, who are you talking to? And he said, you know, I'm talking to these women. And they say, no, you're talking to us. And they wind up beating him and taking his blackjack and going to court. But it's the way of seeing how the politics of protection that you write about as being an exclusionary politics, where women are not extended a protection of the law, but within the nation of Islam, they're being extended that by black men, but at the cost of being also a possession to be protected. So, I think inside the politics of black masculinity plays out both in terms of how men's activism looks, but also in the absence in some ways of a similar story for women who are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Tell us a little. Are there other oh. aspects of your question that I didn't get to though? No, I think that, that, that definitely will, will do it for, for now. <laughs> no. um, tell us more about your larger product. I know this is a piece of a forthcoming work, yes? Yes. So the book charts this dialectics of discipline more broadly, not just in prisons, but also in the streets. So I extend it to thinking about what is the Nation of Islam's relationship from its inception through the mid-70s to the carceral state. And how do these dialectics play out in terms of prison organizing, but also in terms of building Black United Fronts Against Police Brutality. And part of it is to, on a broader scale, think about the role of Black nationalism and anti-carceral organizing within an era that we typically see both of those as subdued tendencies. So one of the things I do is look at multiple sites. So while New York, both for prison organizing as well as anti-police brutality work at Central California, Los Angeles in particular, is also central. So I sort of make this more of a national story and looking from coast to coast at, at the Nation of Islam anti-carceral organizing. Okay. And so I guess my, my final sort of question, 
is when we return back to this article, what we were tasked to discuss, after folks read it, what are the big takeaways that you want people to leave with? I guess I would say three. One is sort of a historical intervention, which is, I think, we're moving in this direction, but thinking more about the role of prisoner struggles earlier than we have. So to think about a long tradition of incarcerated people challenging mm-hmm. the carceral state much before the moment of Angela Davis and Huey Newton and Eldridge mm-hmm. Lieber that we, that we typically hinge that struggle on. The second is the more theoretical contribution, which is this dialectics of discipline, just to, to think about struggles on the ground in a dialectical way. I mean, history is always dialectical, so I think our methods should also reflect that. And the last is, I guess, a methodological contribution or a political one, which is, as we discussed, using state sources creatively to make sure that we're not reproducing state narratives in our histories. I think it's a real challenge, as you know, for us doing this work to to get around the dominance of the state because they most of the archive are produced by the very people whose oppression we're trying to document. So I think pushing scholars to think more creatively about the ways that we can use state sources to advance a political project that's about getting at the struggles of incarcerated people. I think a great answer and a great place to sort of close. I just want to thank you. I thought it was a really great article. I learned a lot. I enjoyed reading it and I'm, I'm looking forward to assigning it. Oh, thank you. I just, it's such an honor to have you discuss it in, in that depth and attentiveness. I really appreciate that. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Gross and Dr. Felber for being with us today on the Journal of American History podcast. Uh, Dr. Gross, uh, for guest hosting, and uh, Dr. Felber as our author. His essay, Shades of Mississippi, The Nation of Islam's Prison Organizing, the Carceral State, and the Black Freedom Struggle, appears in the June 2018 edition of the Journal of American History. Thank you both. Thank Thank you you so much. much.